Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 15, Four Days Holiday. It is Sunday, May the 17th, another nightmare last night, but although a nightmare, beautiful. I was pinioned yet struggling in thick darkness. Close by and surrounded by darkness was a small space of light. This spherical space shone inwardly, and it seemed to have a quality, both beauty and charity. Although I looked into it, I was kept out from it. I seemed to lie on its surface, as if on the surface of a bubble. I longed to break into it. I longed to throw myself at the feet of the magnificent, seated presence that was there. Yet I was held back. I struggled, but I was held motionless as I watched in worship. His figure seemed to burn with pure flame. Bliss lay in his presence, if only I could have reached him. As his hand lifted from his lap, a soft silver light fell from him, held back by writhing, threshing things. I looked on towards the shining one, with awe, for there was a certain terror in beholding his majesty, and yet as light radiated from this source of infinite power from his magnificent eyes and face, and from his seated figure, there came such peace and goodness, and a feeling of such love, that my heart was scorched with joy, joy just to behold him. Even thinking of this nightmare gives me joy, a kind of blessing on my four-day stay at the St Paul's Bay rest camp. The CO sent me over here this morning to cure myself of this Malta dog. I don't know how to cure it, so I'm going to starve for four days. It is wonderful to be back here. It is evening. The sun is almost on the hilltops opposite. Silver water is dancing amongst the darkening rocks by the swimming platform. A capricious breeze blows in my face, and four spitfires are murmuring overhead. Silver wings against the evening blue. Regarding my own flying yesterday, Rome Radio admits the loss of one bomber and a fighter, but they claim to have destroyed six of my eight spitfires. We had no losses. Why then did they tell such lies? Monday, May the 18th. I've had no food since breakfast yesterday. My body's very thin, but I'm feeling much better. I'm lying on my towel, and as I write a letter to Diana, I glance down through the water, forests of green seaweed, lapping left, lapping right, surging to and fro. Further out, gay in the sunlight, white horses are hurrying past St Paul's Island. I haven't had a letter from Diana, and I can't understand it, for other pilots have each had several issues of mail. I don't want to think about that. I've been so brutal and complaining to my young wife in my letters during the last ten days. 
I want to be quiet and tender with her. Tender like the silence here, for the all clear has sounded. All day the battle has gone on. It started before the first light when our night fighters destroyed three bombers in flames. At dawn, some Italian e-boats were seen off the coast. Hurricanes were sent out to destroy them, but 109s appeared. Spitfires were sent out to destroy the 109s. Two 109s were shot down into the sea and others damaged. Mid-morning, the Ju-88 recce plane and two escorting fighters were shot down from 25 Thou, all three into the water. That was the raid in which it probably happened. Peter's been killed. A good friend, a good man, a brilliant pilot. He destroyed 14 enemy planes here, and now they've got him. We will never read his stories. Wednesday, May the 20th. I've been down here at St Paul's Fishing Village since early this morning. I've left my coat and other things up at the Harbour Bar restaurant, and for many hours I've been sitting below one of the jetties amongst the boats. The boats rock gently. I can hear the water smacking against their wooden sides. The sun is fairly high above me. I suppose it's about three o'clock. I've left my watch back there with my coat. I wanted to be timeless as I paint. For four days, I've lived as an artist, without eating, of course, and as I've been painting pictures, I've relearned some old secrets. The natural feeling for time, for instance, sensitive to the arrival and farewell of warmth, to observe once again the flowers turning their quiet faces and the way the shadows shorten and grow longer again. During this four days rest, I've been trying to forget the war, although it was interesting last night to have some relative comparison of our battle. The BBC from London stated that the bombs dropped on Malta last month totaled a greater weight than during the 1940 Blitz on England. It is difficult to believe that tomorrow I will be back in the thick of it again. This makes me think about our battle and about war. Some of us may hate, but perhaps I and those of my companions who have no emotion in the air are even more frightening creatures, human automatons. We concentrate upon skillful tactics to get into the best position for an attack, while the actual moment of killing the enemy is dominated by mathematical problems of deflection shooting to hit not a man, but a machine. But if air warfare is impersonal for us in Spitfires, it must be even more so for the bomber crews with their puffball contribution on the corner of a map. This impersonality terrifies me. More and more destructive bombs will obviously be developed in this war. But what of the next war? And the war after that? It is strange that in 1938 and 1939 people said that war was so horrible that it would never happen. They had sharp and vivid in their minds the ghastly example of what air raids could do to cities in Spain, yet we are being bombed here by weapons developed from the Spanish prototypes. The future too will take for granted its newly developed bombs. People will cringe in terror as new missiles plunge towards them out of the skies. The people who are not wiped out on the edge of their explosions will go on facing it as we are facing it. The only hope for the future as I see it is... If man's traditional loyalty, good in its time but out of date, be expanded by love and respect towards all his fellows. Yet here, and I find it difficult to believe it as I look down on the gently lapping water, instead of loving I am taught to hate. To abide by what we all believe in is the real battle. Sir, sir! High above me, on the jetty, a figure in a black suit is gesticulating against the blue sky. It's the waiter from the restaurant. It's a quarter to four, sir. Don't you want any lunch? It's a bit late for lunch, isn't it? I'm very sorry, sir. I hunted for you most places, but you couldn't be found. I saw your coat and I knew you hadn't been in to eat. I've kept two fishes for you. They only take a moment to cook. Well, bless you. I'll be up in a minute. After four days, it should be harmless to eat two fishes. I'll be flying tomorrow. I'll have to eat. I'm walking back towards Naxar in the late dusk. From a medical point of view, this holiday's been a complete failure. The fishes and I have already parted company in beastly circumstances. I'll just have to accept this pain that doubles me up as I walk. There are screaming engines above me in the night sky. Ju-88 bombers are diving overhead towards Takali. Black shapes against the fading light. Bombs crack and rumble. Their orange glows quickly silhouette the stunted trees. 
Red hose pipe shells sail up into the darkness, bursting irregularly. If I were flying, the best way to attack these bombers would be to swoop in from the east and catch their silhouettes against the evening glow. I'm in bed now, but when I came into the bar this evening, the CO wandered across and put a large friendly hand on my shoulder. Hello, Dennis, are you better? Yes, I lied. For what else could I say after four days off? Some of the others lifted their hands in greeting as Pancho came over to tell me the news. Harris is dead. Yesterday, the new boy I initiated last week was shot down. He escaped by parachute. In the same fight, one of our sergeants called Mount had a lucky escape. His spitfire was riddled with holes, his shoulders burnt by incendiary bullets and his legs peppered with shrapnel. Apparently, Scotty, leading the formation, was surprised by 109s, but turning fiercely, he got in a burst on a 109 which blew up, so they too paid a price. As the CO moved across to talk to Cyril, reading quietly in the corner, Scotty himself came over. The CO was nearly shot down himself this morning, he told me. He led us into another lot of eye ties, like the lot we went into with you. We got two of their fighters, Mount got one despite his burns, and Sergeant Innes got a complete sitter. You all seem to be doing jolly well, I interrupted, glancing at the scoreboard. The scoreboard's still a blank. You know, Dennis, he continued, these Italians are an odd lot. They either don't want to fight or they haven't got a clue. When you get behind them, they do beautiful aerobatics, loops, rolls off the top, anything but get out of the way and fight properly. Sergeant Innes's sitter was just like that. But there I go again. I'm, tr- I'm trying to tell you about the CO. It was all the dreaded Hughes fault because he was the last man to fly the CO's machine. I thought the dreaded Hughes was in hospital. He was, but he came back from his dysentery lapses just after you left last Sunday. Hugh must have done something awful to that plane, rejigged it or retrimmed it or something, for the CO could hardly control the thing. He was milling around up there when an eye tie comes up and sits right behind him. He couldn't throw the eye tie off. Round and round he went, finally plunging down, twisting and turning, but the eye tie just sat there. He levelled off, expecting to be shot down, but the eye tie comes alongside, waves his hand and fires his guns into thin air. What did the CO make of it? Dunno, but poor old Hugh got it in the neck all right. Expect he wishes he was back in hospital. Well, what do you make of it, Scotty? Scotty shrugged his shoulders. Scotty, I continued, maybe you're right. Maybe these Italians don't want to fight. If they disapproved of the war and yet were anxious what Hitler or Mussolini might do to their families, wouldn't they pretend to fight? Well, they drop bombs on us, don't they? Yes, I know they drop bombs, but it wouldn't be easy for a bomber crew to pretend. Yet, heavens me, they miss the target often enough. Even that might be deliberate. Yes, Scotty, these fighter pilots must be pretending, I added, highly excited about what I was discovering. Why else should a pilot refuse to shoot down a Spitfire? We know that fellow wasn't out of ammunition. He may even have flown alongside the CO to show his true feelings. It accounts for everything. The extravagant claims from Rome Radio. On the last trip I made, they claimed six or eight Spitfires when they hadn't hit any of us. These pilots have got to make their case look good. It accounts for the CO's eye tie firing his guns into thin air. You can't claim Spitfires if you haven't fired your guns. They're pretending to fight. Pretending. What, what are we going to do, Scotty? We'll have to shoot down their bombers, but they're fighters. Do we leave them alone? Sergeant Johns, his mouth in a firm, disdainful line, butted into the conversation. Bastards, he said. The Italians are just a yellow-livered lot of bastards. They've no stomach for war. Shoot down all the bastards, is what I say. I suppose you think it takes no guts to fly over here when every Spitfire is doing its best to destroy you, I replied. I suppose you think it takes no guts to restrain from firing your guns, even in self-defence. Whose side are you on anyway, replied the sergeant. The Italians are dirty little milksops. The Germans know how to fight. They would never indulge your pacifism. I should have kept quiet. You're quite wrong, Sergeant Johns, I continued with strange calmness. The Germans were the first people to try out an active pacifism in the face of modern war. Have you never heard of the incident in the trenches near Armentieres in France on Christmas Day in 1914? The Germans started singing carols in their line 
And finally, a German officer of immense courage stood up, deliberately exposing himself to fire from the British trenches. But nobody did fire. He called out no hostilities and suggested that both sides should meet in no man's land. Not only did they meet, but exchanging food and cigarettes, a lot of individual Germans started making friends with a lot of individual Englishmen. And what happened then? asked Sergeant Johns with a facetious grin. That's the tragedy of it, I continued. I imagine that officers were ordered to go into the battlefield yelling no fraternisation, for both sides were certainly bludgeoned back into killing one another. Just imagine, Johns, what might have happened if that fraternisation had spread, if individual soldiers, not only at Armentieres, but everywhere along the line, had climbed out and got to know one another, sharing a common hatred of war and inspired with a new loyalty towards their individual Christian feelings, their humanitarianism, each man for his fellows. They could have spread their refusal to make war back behind the lines. Just imagine it, because a limit would have been set to what governments could demand of their citizens. The whole history of the world would have been changed. A new era of peace would have dawned. Millions of men would never have died in the 1914-18 war, and this war would never have happened. There was a long pause after I'd finished, but within a few brief seconds, Sergeant Johns voiced the usual scornful reaction. So now you want us to jump out of our spitfires and shake hands with the Huns as well? I should have kept quiet. I left the bar almost at once, and I'm in bed now. I shudder to think of what I've been saying. Stupidly, I was hurt again. I could have pulled my rank on John's, but he's a damn good pilot, and after all, it was a personal affair. I should have kept my deeply felt convictions to myself. When will I learn not to break out from my solitude? I must withdraw into myself. Hugh is in the third bed, fast asleep, his head at an awkward angle, his mouth half open, snoring. The CO, undressing, doesn't seem to have overheard my indiscretions at the bar. Dennis, are you well enough to take redness in the morning? Yes. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's Patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window, coming soon. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 